0: Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray together as God's people. Most wonderful God, we have come in from the cold and the snow to the warmth of worship to gather as a community of faith. Make us be one in joy and peace that we may praise you with one loud voice, and adore you with one gracious heart, and be equipped to serve you in the world as your representatives. Work among us, in us, and through us, ever creating, ever crafting us, that we might follow you, living into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, Bless this, our proclamation of of your word, that we may receive the gift of your grace and share it with those who we will meet on this journey to which we are called. Speak to us today, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. The scripture today comes from the book of Isaiah Forty-three, verses 1 to 2, and then 18 to 19. And now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is the word of the Lord. Be
1: to God. It is wonderful to be here today and to look out and see so many new faces and yet so many familiar faces and I'm um. I'm trying not to tear up. So. <laughs> uh, when Mark and I left here 19 years ago, we had a four-year-old little guy with curly hair, and a two-year-old, uh, and uh, two-year-old Auden. And now they are both uh, senior and sophomore in college. And I don't want to make you feel old, but that's how old they are. And. Uh, When we moved to Chicago, we had a third child, Hallie, and she is a junior in high school, and we're hoping to have a Wolverine someday. So (laughs) that's the hope. Uh, We now live in a place called Grand Rapids. And if you're anything like me, uh, maybe for like Pumpkin Fest or Winter Fest or something, I may have gone as West as Chelsea or Dexter. (laughs) But there's a whole world out there. Uh, the other side of the state, there's a lake and a beautiful little city. And um, I had no idea, and I know most people on the east side and west side don't actually go, go back and forth. So it's a lovely place, and we've uh, called that home for 14 years. Uh, Mark sends his greetings um, he is at our own annual meeting today, so uh, he couldn't come, but he um, is anxious to hear how this day went and sends his greetings as well. The scripture lesson comes from the, uh, from the book of 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It's a letter from Paul to uh, one of his uh, assistants in ministry, Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, When I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or about me as a prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, this God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and his grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it is now revealed to us in the appearing of Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed. I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to that standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Will you pray with me, please? Oh God, in this sacred place, to this sacred place, we come this morning. We come seeking hope. We come seeking answers. We come seeking comfort. We come giving thanks. Oh God, as we come before your word, as we hear your word, perhaps even familiar words, Let them become new to us, and let us become new to you and to each other. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had anything entrusted to you? Were you, in other words, ever trusted with something? In my home in Grand Rapids, there is a table that once stood in the formal dining room of my childhood home, made of rich walnut. It's one of those with leaves or sections that can be added, so it can seat six or eight or even 12 people. And although the wood is beautiful, no one would ever know that. Because most days there is a thick pad covering the table. I can't help myself. I need to protect it from scratches and water glasses and spilt coffee. My parents entrusted that table to me. I need to take care of it. Along with that table, when I think of the things that have been entrusted to me, I think of relationships, the vows I took on this day in 1990, for example, to be a wife, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. At that moment, although I didn't quite comprehend it at the time, something was entrusted to me, a relationship, a foundation, a launching pad, a gift. When Mark and I stood here in this sanctuary in 1994, we were in our 20s. No one told us, but we were in a desperate need of haircuts. We looked like the clergy version of John Bon Bon Jovi and Gilda Radner. (laughs) It was here that we promised to serve the church, to serve you. It was here that we promised to give our energy and intelligence, imagination, and love. And as you gathered around us on these chancel steps and joined in that ancient Christian tradition of laying on your hands in ordination, something was entrusted to us. I wonder, has anything ever been entrusted to you? A relationship or a possession, a title or a business handed down? something which came to define your life, your path, your purpose, your legacy. We find that word entrusted in our passage this morning. It's a concept that frames Paul's entire letter to Timothy. You may know that 24 of the 27 books of the New Testament are actually written in letter form. And 13 of those 24 are written by the early church missionary named Paul. Most of these letters get their names from their recipients. So the book known as Romans was written to the church in Rome. And the books known as First and 2 Corinthians were written to the church in Corinth. And our reading today comes from a second letter of Timothy, one of the few letters written to an individual who, of course, was named Timothy. This week I was thinking about letters, and I suddenly remembered Marilyn Baker, a saint of this congregation. I remember the blue ink in her beautiful cursive handwriting as she took time to write encouraging notes to me or to Mark after a sermon or a class we taught, or a return from a mission trip. Those notes followed us to our next two congregations. I also thought about the letters my husband Mark wrote when we were separated for a summer during seminary. I was in Maine, and he was visiting missionaries in Brazil. And it's unfathomable now, but there were no cell phones. And phone booths, remember those? They were few and far between in rural Maine and Brazil. And so before we left, he gave me a box full of letters. He had written a letter for me to open each day that we were apart. I know, a collective, aww. (laughs) I wonder, do you have letters saved somewhere in your home, perhaps from a lover, or a parent, a child, or an institution bestowing upon you an award? Sean Usher lives in the UK and Spent four years wading through letters and memos and telegrams. He read letters from the famous, the infamous, and the not-so-famous. And he published a wonderful book under the title, Letters of Note. He highlights 125 letters. Some of those letters are endearing and affectionate, like the one from Queen Elizabeth to Dwight Eisenhower. In August of 1959, she had entertained the president and his wife Mamie at her castle in Scotland. And while discussions took place behind closed doors, this much we know President Eisenhower clearly enjoyed her scones. (laughs) So much so that she sent him her personal recipe with this letter. Dear Mr. President, and only as the British can do, she said, I hasten to send this recipe. I do hope it will be successful. Though the quantities are for 16 people, when there are fewer, I generally put in less flour and milk. (laughs) Does the queen bake her own scones? I've also tried using golden syrup or treacle instead of only sugar, and that can be very good, too. I think the mixture needs a great deal of beating. And again, the queen beats her scones. And don't let it stand about too long before the baking. All good wishes to you and Mrs. Eisenhower. Yours sincerely, Elizabeth R. A sweet, kind letter, letting him know that he was in her thoughts. But this was not the kind of letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. There are also other letters in Usher's books which address an injustice or seek to right a wrong. He says, Jackie Robinson was an exceptionally talented baseball player. Such was his talent that in 1947, he obliterated the unwritten rule within baseball that players of African descent could not join teams in either the minor or the major leagues. In 1958, Robinson sent a letter to President Eisenhower in response to a speech in which the president had called for patience from African-Americans in their fight for civil rights. My dear Mr. President, he writes, I was sitting in the audience at the summit meeting of Negro leaders yesterday when you said we must have patience. I respectfully remind you, sir, that we have been the most patient of all people. When you said we must have self-respect, I wondered how we could have self-respect and remain patient considering the treatment accorded to us all these years. 17 million Negroes cannot do as you suggest and wait for the hearts of men to change. We want to enjoy now the rights we feel we are entitled to as Americans, respectfully yours, Jackie Robinson, to address an injustice, to right a wrong. This was also not the kind of letter Paul wrote to Timothy. You might remember E.B. White from the Elements of Style. And it occurred to me as I wrote that sentence this week that Ann Arbor is probably the only city I could say that statement. <laughs> of course, White also wrote Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web. In 1973, he corresponded with a Mr. Nadu, who sought White's opinion on what he saw as a bleak future for the human race. Dear Mr. Nadu, White wrote, it's quite obvious that the human race has made a queer mess of life on this planet. But as a people, we harbor seeds of goodness that have lain for a long time waiting to sprout when the conditions are right. So hang on to your hat. Hang on to your hope. And wind the clock, for tomorrow is another day. Sincerely, E.B. White. There are also letters of encouragement and resolve, letters that remind us to point towards hope. That was the letter Paul wrote to Timothy. And in a sense, it was a letter Paul was writing as much to himself as to Timothy. Paul, you see, was writing from jail in Rome. After Paul's arrest, Timothy went home. He was clearly in distress. And although we are not certain why, it seems as if he was sitting this round out or perhaps even taking his toys and going home. Paul and Timothy knew each other well. They had originally met when Paul was on a missionary journey to Timothy's hometown of Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. Immediately, Paul saw in Timothy a potential for leadership and invited him to be his right-hand man. It is clear from his letters that Paul believed in Timothy and could see God's call in his life, and yet the word timid peppers this letter. Scholars guess Timothy was now hesitant, where he was once bold. Instead of leaning into the future and leading the congregation forward in faith, he was now pacing, anxious, running his hands through his hair. Have you ever felt that way? Something happened, and doubt crept in, where courage used to have a foothold. The worst case scenario emerges in your imagination rather than the best case scenario. Into that reality Paul writes these words. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit. The Greek grammar has a different emphasis. That good treasure that has been entrusted to you guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us last November I received one of those early morning emails from Melissa Ann (laughs) 530 who's up at 530 (laughs) Melissa Ann She invited me to preach on January 27th, the day of your annual meeting. When Melissa Ann asked me, I said yes. And do you know why? And it's not because everybody says yes to Melissa Ann. You can't say no. (laughs) I mean, maybe it was, but I'm not going to admit that. Because on these chancel steps, something precious was entrusted to me. And I suspect many of you feel the same way. When you were ordained as elders or deacons. When you spoke those words for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health. When you took those vows of membership. confirmation or baptism. Here in this sacred place, something was entrusted to me and entrusted to you. And a long, long time ago, in the city of Lystra, that same thing was entrusted to Timothy. But as with all things of value, we need to remember their worth and learn how to guard them. So how do we do that? As I pondered that question these last few weeks, the words of Isaiah came to mind. The prophet was speaking to a people that needed to be restoried. They had lost their narrative. They were living with no storyline. Isaiah's task was to rebuild their understanding of who they were as God's people. And to do this, he needed to go back and remind them of their story. He needed to retell their history in a way that they would remember the chapters when they knew they were created by God. Those chapters when they were confident that God was forming them. Chapters when they heard the call of God and boldly stepped forward. He had to remind them what had been entrusted to them. But Isaiah doesn't do this so they can find assurance or comfort in those good old days. After a litany of what God has done, he says, forget the former times. Do not dwell on the past. Can you see? I'm doing a new thing. It's springing up around you. Can you perceive it? Guarding. It's a bit of a spirit-led dance. There's a step looking back to remember what God has done, but we only step back so we can step forward to recognize those patterns, to see what God is doing, what new thing is happening. This week I took a few steps in that spirit-led dance, And I brushed up on the history of First Press. I was reminded how, in the early years, beginning in 1826, services were held in a schoolhouse, the ballroom of a tavern, the second floor of a hotel. I found it fascinating that deep within the DNA of first press, when God was doing a brand new thing here in Ann Arbor, people of this congregation were learning to love their God through education, fellowship, hospitality. You have guarded that treasure well. A few years later, in November of 1836, those bold Presbyterians received, perceived God doing a new thing and hosted an organizational meeting of the Michigan Anti-Slavery Society. They were entrusted with the treasure of living their faith through social justice and loving their neighbor. You have guarded that treasure well. 1935 to 1938. Anyone remember what was happening in those years? During the worst economic downturn in the history of the industrialized world, Presbyterians in Ann Arbor... Decided that they were going to build a sanctuary to seat 650 people. And they were going to create a preaching and music ministry that would be recognized nationally for excellence. You have guarded that treasure well. But it wasn't about the sanctuary. What happened here was never meant to stay here. Rather, it sharpened your vision to see what God was doing on the Michigan campus, in the overflowing homeless shelters, in neighborhoods in need of affordable housing from here to Detroit to the Philippines. You were looking in schools in Israel and Nicaragua and in clinics as far away as Haiti. You have guarded that treasure well. I could go on, but there's work to do. The annual meeting is about to start, which means two things. First, we dance. We step back to remember what God has entrusted to us all these years. And then we step forward and scan the horizon to see what new thing God is doing. Secondly, we look around. We look to our right, to our left, before us, behind us. The point of an annual meeting is that more than one of you will show up. (laughs) And I mean it. No one is doing this alone. Rather, we are working through the spirit that lives in all of us who pushes us to dream the impossible and challenges us to do the improbable. So friends, it's time. Let's start the dance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information,